It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey now, a little sports news from over the weekend, and I hope you had a very good Christmas weekend. Tom Brady with Tampa Bay threw for 348 yards and four touchdowns in the first half to lead the Buccaneers to a 47-7 win over Detroit, and they make the NFL playoffs. Brady played so well, they sat him down after the first half because the lead was so huge. He's 43 years old, six Super Bowl titles, 20 years with New England. And by the way, Buccaneers in the playoffs, guess who is not in the playoffs? The New England Patriots. How's that trade looking these days? Not so good. I just love this story so much before we get down to serious business because it kind of encapsulates uh, the ethos of the Beltway, the pretentiousness, the fake literary illusions, and all of that. Politico has this wonderful piece uh, starting out by talking about the Washington bookshelves. When you go to the house of somebody who's like a big shot or used to work in the administration, former congressional aide, and so forth, they've got a bookshelf, you know, that has all these sort of serious nonfiction titles and maybe a little erudite uh, high-end fiction as well. It even creates this phrase, uh, Washington Bookshelf. So there is a company in Maryland uh, called Books by the Foot. (laughs) I just love this. Books by the Foot. Uh, And it's become the go-to curator for Washington Bookshelves. But here's what's new about this. Books by the Foot has thrived through Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. But now with the coronavirus, with so many people appearing on cable news from their homes, from their living rooms, from their studies, from whatever room they can cobble together and everybody, you know, there's this Room Raider uh, Twitter feed, uh, everybody commenting on, you know, have nice plants. Well, too much light was coming in. Boy, look at that art. You can buy books by the foot. And what that means is you don't have to read any of those books. You just ask them for the kind of books you want to display behind you so people th- will think you're a serious Washington expert. Uh, the staff doesn't pry too much, says Politico, uh, into which objective a particular client is after. Uh, if an order comes in for 12 feet of books about politics, I love this measuring by feet, specifically with a progressive or liberal tilt, as one did in August, the manager sends um, an enormous box labeled politically incorrect, about 120 books by, you know, uh, Bill Maher, Hillary Clinton, Al Franken, Bob Woodward, and the books are staged or arranged with the same care a florist might extend to a bouquet of flowers. Wow. And then they're double-checked, and it's got to look, in other words, it doesn't matter if you read them. It doesn't even matter if you have any interest in reading them, but if it looks good, then you've got it made. Now, apparently, Books by the Foot really took off in 2010 when Meet the Press was switching to a new set, wanted to have bookshelves in the backdrop, and so ordered up a bunch of looks by, I guess the category was professional glossy look. Uh, about 200 feet of books. Wow. Um, so uh, also, Books by the Foot, boy, is this a free commercial for them. This company um, also has been contracted by a number of TV shows and movies, including Madam Secretary, Veep, of course, The Blacklist, House of Cards. So it's the classic it's more important what's on the surface, what it looks like, rather than when you, whether you can discuss the substance and the message and the theme of any of these books. All right, I want to start out now by talking about uh, The weekend, and as well what we did on Media Buzz, which I hope you had a chance to see, 
And all of the issues now swirling, the multiple controversies, like a Venn diagram, swirling around President Trump. So first of all, uh, when my show came on the air, uh, Fox News was still taking a live news conference from Nashville. So you know what it's about. It was about the horrible uh, Christmas bombing. And it was, but it was a, actually a very uplifting um, news conference because it was uh, uh, featured the six Nashville officers who ran toward the area of downtown uh, in Nashville where uh, there had been a warning from an RV uh, that a bomb was about to go off and it proved to be a massive bomb. And by the way, it came out later in the day that police are now convinced this was a suicide bombing, that the guy who they believed did this, and there's a lot of evidence, uh, a guy with a background in electronics uh, blew himself up after giving that warning. Uh, I'm not going to give his name because I don't like to publicize people who commit these heinous crimes. Uh, but, he, you know, he, he had given notice at his job and things like that. Anyway, uh, these six police officers, at huge risk to themselves, in fact, one of them, two of them described being very near the center of the blast and the huge wall of flames that went up and, and how they couldn't believe they were knocked off their feet. They put other people first to clear out, to help evacuate the downtown buildings um, so that uh, to limit or eliminate any possible casualties. And I just think in a year when so there's been so much um, news coverage, and appropriately so, of police abuses, of police brutality, of excessive police force, uh, of, of racism in police departments, you know, all of which has to be covered. This is a reminder that most police officers are not just honest. They are brave. They are courageous. They are heroes. And these six officers, and you saw them from different walks of life, they're absolute heroes. And so I was actually glad Fox was carrying this. Anyway, when I got the show back, you now have to make about 50 decisions on the fly about what you can keep, what you're going to throw out. I wanted to get to all the guests. We had a really good lineup of guests. And I wanted to get to all the topics. Um, so we did what we could. It's a kind of a triage situation. You literally have to decide in an instant, I'm going to throw this out. I want to make sure I get to the pardons and all that. So the three controversies surrounding President Trump, uh, I will go through one by one. One is the COVID bill. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, another um, were the pardons. And I talked about that during the week, uh, you know, the different categories of pardons here. And I think what struck me the most, I don't know, a lot of people were upset about the Blackwater Guards being pardoned for the killing of Iraqi civilians, although others say they were an impossible situation. Certainly, you know, trying to blunt the impact of the Mueller investigation by giving pardons to very disparate figures. You know, George Papadopoulos, minor guy, Paul Manafort sentenced to seven years for bank and tax fraud in his foreign dealmaking. Uh, Roger Stone, uh, serious offenses, but always kind of a wacky character. Uh, and this is after Mike Flynn and so forth, and Jared Kushner's father. Uh, I think what bothered me the most were the three Republican members of Congress. Different cases, but the, the, you know we're talking here about Steve Stockman, Duncan Hunter, and, and Chris Collins, but the offenses range from insider trading to misusing the donations that people gave to your campaign to fraud and money laundering, and they all get off the hook. The second story, as I mentioned, um, the COVID bill, but I want to talk a little bit about battling the election. Because I want to, in a little bit more time than I usually have on the air, I want to explain how for four years, really for six years, starting with the campaign, I have tried my best to be fair to President Trump. Now, part of that is my responsibility as a journalist, while so many other 
um, people in the media business and whole news organizations decided it was a really uh, good thing to do to, in effect, become part of the resistance or show endless negativity toward Trump. And, you know, I always hasten to add, when he does things uh, where he deserves to be criticized, he should be criticized. He's the president and aggressively criticized. Sometimes he punches back against people who criticize him. Uh, that's certainly true of many of the, the battles he has with what he calls the fake news media. Uh, sometimes he just picks the fight. Or, you know, if somebody like Joe Scarborough uh, is criticizing Trump day after day, which is his right as an MSNBC commentator, um, Trump then goes 10 steps further and, and tries to tie Scarborough to some wacky conspiracy theory about an intern who unfortunately died in his office 20 years ago. And so I try to call that out. But at the same time, the, the attitudes toward the president have been, and this doesn't please either side, because the partisans out there, they want you to either be totally in the tank for Trump, no matter what he does, or they want you to be totally never Trump. And so if you say, uh, for example, that Trump wasn't fairly accused of X, people say, oh, he, he is a psychopath, a word used by a CNN reporter. He is a liar. He is dangerous. How can you not see it? Well, you know, if you're a commentator, you can say what you want. Well, I think some language goes too far on both sides. Um, but if you are a journalist, you lay it out. If you're an analyst, as I am, uh, when you see the need to criticize, you criticize. When you see uh, problems on both sides, when you see the media being unfair to this president, you, you talk about that as well. So, but it has been hard in the last month to find much positive to say. And I say this because we're in this crazy situation, not that President Trump didn't have every right to file all those lawsuits contesting the outcome of the election, but he lost 49 of the 50 suits uh, with all kinds of judges making rulings, some of them Trump judges, some of them Republican-appointed judges, some of them uh, judges appointed by Bush or Obama or Clinton. Uh, so you couldn't prove the case in court. That's just a fact. People say, oh, oh there's all this evidence. Well, it didn't pass legal muster. And then you had the Electoral College voting, and you have even Republicans led by Mitch McConnell saying, we now recognize Joe Biden as the president-elect. Now, I get that with the president, current president uh, saying that there is, uh, you know, that this is absolute fraud and it's widespread and it's a stolen election and it's the biggest electoral fraud in American history, that a majority of Republicans, according to polls, believe what he says and don't believe the media. I understand that. But it's still my job to point out when he is going too far. So uh, on Christmas Eve, he was tweeting about the election. Uh, on the day after Christmas, he had just an absolute blizzard of tweets about the election, a couple other topics, but mainly the election. And so it's fair to say, you know, that uh, he's not prioritizing other problems facing our country. He is prioritizing what he sees as an election that is taking the presidency away from him. So, for example, he actually tweeted, um, the elections in Afghanistan are more fair than the election we just had in the U.S., uh, which has given us a fake president, I guess fake president, to go along with the fake news. So he's calling Joe Biden a fake president. That gives you some indication of where Donald Trump is going to be the next four years. Well, Joe Biden didn't steal the election. Uh, were there Democrats who conspired to steal the election? Again, I don't have any evidence of it. Don't You don't have to take my word for it. Look at the judges. Look at the Trump Justice Department. Bill Barr, before resigning, said no evidence that DOJ could find of widespread election fraud. So you get attacked. Well, of course, there's fraud. You just can't see it. You're part of the problem. You're complicit. You're covering up. 
I don't see it that way. President also tweeting that the Supreme Court of the United States is weak and incompetent. He referred to DOJ as the, quote, Justice Department. So he is absolutely convinced that he was robbed. But, you know, he does have a history of this, and I'll point to two quick examples. The very first electoral contest he ever competed in were the Iowa caucuses in 2016. He came in second. Ted Cruz came in first. Donald Trump said Ted Cruz or the Republicans had cheated uh, to enable Ted Cruz to win Iowa. And then, of course, he wins the presidency in 2016 and then says that, you know, millions of uh, illegal immigrants voted and no evidence ever emerged of that. So that's where we are as far as the election. And the president tweeting late yesterday, one, that he'll be in Georgia on January 4th. That will be the night before those two Senate runoffs, the Republican candidates, uh, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. Uh, if one of them of the two wins, Republicans keep control of the Senate. If both Republicans lose, the Democrats would take control on tie vote to be settled by Kamala Harris. Uh, there was news in the last couple of days that both of the Democratic challengers, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, have each raised $100 million. I mean, that's a staggering figure, but of course it's become a nationalized election. But more importantly, on my point here, the president then said in a substance tweet, see you on January 6th, more info to follow. Well, January 6th is the day, and it's usually just this kind of boring formality, that Congress convenes and votes to formally accept the findings of the Electoral College. Well, Trump has been pretty openly trying to get a certain combination of Republicans to challenge that, which would require a congressional debate. And maybe he's got other things up his sleeve. I don't know. It seems to me that ultimately it has to fail because you need both houses of Congress to go along. And the Democrats, with Nancy Pelosi as Speaker, We'll certainly not go along with taking the election away from Joe Biden uh, and with Biden having won, according to the official count, 306 electoral votes and a more than 7 million vote majority in the popular vote. I don't see why they should. But nevertheless, uh, the president's sort of doing the coming attractions thing. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Now to the COVID bill. So the news broke last night that President Trump has now signed the COVID-19 relief bill, the $900 billion measure designed to get financial aid into the pockets of many, many tens of millions of Americans who need it. This after days of turning Washington into an absolute uh, crazy town, uh, people confused, uh, people in his own party begging the president to take some action to get this relief going. Now, he put out a victorious statement, which I will go through, and I have to say he didn't really get anything in concrete, in, in, in solid terms uh, that he can point to that he had any real impact on the legislation. Now, what did he do? He made himself the center of attention. There are a lot of the president's critics out there who say, well, um, that's uh, what he does. He wants to create confusion and chaos, and then he rides to the rescue. Keep in mind, the president could have weighed in during all those weeks when this bill was being negotiated, when Steve Mnuchin was going up and talking to Nancy and saying, this is the White House position. The president didn't like $600 stimulus checks. You know what? I don't either. I think it's too small. He wants $2,000. So do the Democrats. He could have convinced the Senate to do it. He, uh, he stayed out of it. He stayed out of the negotiations. He delegated. He waited until the House and the Senate passed the bills and then came in and said, you know what? I don't like this bill. It's a disgrace. The very bill that his own Treasury Secretary had said uh, was a great achievement. He said it was a disgrace. So what did the president get in return? Well, for one thing, 
Uh, one thing has changed, which is the fact that he didn't sign this by Saturday night means that those who, uh, who need unemployment benefits, 10 million Americans for whom unemployment benefits had ended, they lose a whole week of those benefits. The bill only covers 11 weeks of jobless benefits. Now they only get 10. Had he not signed it, they would get nothing. So, I mean, I'm glad the president uh, did this. I'm glad that Donald Trump realized that he was potentially inflicting a lot of damage uh, by taking a stand where there was no time for Congress to recover. Now, all he had to do, he didn't have to veto this thing. He had to just not sign it by January 3rd at that point, the 116th Congress goes out of business, all legislation expires, a new Congress has to deal with it from scratch. Now, what he said was he still doesn't like some of the spending in the bill. Fine. Again, he could have weighed in earlier. So under the you know Federal Impoundment Act, uh, he doesn't have the power. There is no line on a veto to strip out of that legislation uh, the, the spending that he doesn't like. So he's going to send a very strong message to Congress that Congress itself should repeal parts of the bill and take away, uh, delete the spending he doesn't like. Now, how much do you think uh, the impact it's going to have to send a very strong message to Congress, keeping in mind that Congress is only able to act between now and January 3rd? And Congress, you know, wants to go home for New Year's. So the likelihood of any of the spending that the president has objected to being rescinded is, I would say, somewhere between nil and a tiny amount. Um, also, you know, one of the things, and this was a dumb political mistake by the Hill. At the last minute, just for reasons of convenience and just take one vote and all that, Congress combined the $900 billion COVID relief bill. And there are things in there to criticize, surely. Uh, but he com Congress combined that with this $1.4 trillion government spending bill to fund much of the government through the end of the fiscal year, the end of next September. And that's where it con contains the foreign aid, much of that foreign aid asked for by the Trump State Department, by the way, and other pork barrel measures that are always in these sort of Christmas tree bills that Congress passes at the end of any session under great deadline pressure. So that enabled um, Republicans who wanted to defend the president, and a lot of Republicans didn't, uh, to stand up and say, well, you know, we shouldn't be using this bill, this COVID relief bill, to send money to, you know, fill in the blank country. Again, it was a different bill. You don't have to like it. Why pass that bill? Why combine them? It, it, it blurred the identity uh, and it took the focus off the president's 11th hour intervention and onto things that could then be tagged as part of COVID relief. All right, so what else does the president say? He's sending a strong message. He wants certain things out of the bill. Okay. Uh, and he takes credit for the fact that this will restore the unemployment benefits, stop evictions, provide rental assistance, money for the small business loans, you know, all of which are badly, badly needed in the middle of a pandemic that has killed 330,000 Americans. Then he says, on Monday, the House will vote to increase payments to individuals from $600 to $2,000. Uh, I thought the House had already done that, but maybe it will do it again. Of course, the Democrats love $2,000 stimulus checks. That's what they wanted all along. So Trump claims this is a victory when actually it's the Democratic position. And he talks about a family with four would receive $5,000 more and all that. But what about the Senate? Well, the Senate will, here's the language from President Trump, start the process for a vote that increases checks to $2,000. Start the process, start the process, on December 28th, when you only have until January 3rd, uh, if President Trump gets the Senate in that short period of time, remember, a lot of senators, including Mitch McConnell, didn't even want to spend this 600 bucks. They think that the spending is out of control, even for COVID relief. 
somehow they're going to more than triple it to $2,000. If the president can somehow pull that off, I will stand up, tip my hat to him, and say he can declare victory. He was able to single-handedly, although again, he probably could have done this earlier, get the level of stimulus checks up to $2,000. But all he's saying is they're going to start the process. It's the kind of face-saving language you use when you have no ability to dictate the outcome. The greatest likelihood here is that the $600 remains the figure for the stimulus checks. This Congress expires. The 117th Congress comes in the beginning of January. Joe Biden takes office on January 20th. And when Biden, who's already called this bill a down payment, he wanted Congress to pass it. He pushed the Democrats into compromising with the GOP. He can now say, look, that was a down payment. We need more money. And he can cite President Trump. He says, look, I want $1,400 checks now uh, to go to everybody. And, and he can say, I agree with Trump. I don't know whether that's a winning rhetorical argument, but that can happen. Then you get to the presidential wish list. Congress has promised. Okay, what exactly is Congress promise? This is the president's words. That Section 230, which so unfairly benefits big tech at the expense of the American people, will be reviewed and either be terminated or substantially reformed. Now, Section 230 is what gives Twitter and Facebook and Google and any other uh, Silicon Valley giant that allows third-party posting, in other words, you and me providing the content, legal immunity from suits. Uh, I think Congress was already on its way to reforming it. Uh, this, by the way, was one of the things that prompted him to defeat, to veto the defense spending bill, a completely separate piece of legislation where he had signaled he would veto it. So maybe that will give him a rationale then to sign uh, or rescind his veto uh, of the, I don't know if you can do that or they have to pass it again, of the, it's about a seven or $800 billion bill for Pentagon and military spending, including pay for soldiers. He also says the House and Senate have agreed to focus strongly on the very substantial voter fraud which took place in the November 3rd presidential election. Well, what does that mean, focus strongly? The Democrats don't want to focus strongly on it. They don't believe there was substantial fraud. By the way, neither do all the judges who have heard these cases, and neither does Bill Barr's Justice Department. Of course, there's some fraud. There's fraud in every election. So what did the president get? He got a promise to review Section 230. He got a promise probably by Republicans to take a look at the voter fraud. Uh, he got uh, bragging rights because he held it up and now he comes in and saves the bill at the last minute. But the odds of him getting uh, any of the money rescinded in the final days before the Congress expires or the odds of him getting the checks actually up to $2,000, very, very small. So President Trump may declare victory, but I'm sure uh, the media coverage will make clear that he didn't really get very much. Nevertheless, I'm happy he did this. I think that, uh, you know, he, he enjoys shaking things up. He's the great disruptor. Uh, but in the end, what's important is that the unemployment benefits be restored, that at least some stimulus checks go out while we try to get more money. Uh, if there's a majority in Congress that believes that's a good idea, certainly Joe Biden does. And that you know, people won't be kicked out of their houses and small businesses, many of which are hanging on by uh, their fingernails, will be able to access some of these uh, loans that once again could be forgiven as happened um, back in the spring. So in that sense, it's good news but I just want you to know there's a lot of spin here in the president's remarks. The Washington Post has an interesting analysis now, because if you look at the election, you'd say, well, OK, the Democrats didn't do as well as expected in the House. Their House majority shrunk by a number of seats. And that's a setback in a year when, you know, the top of the ticket, Joe Biden, wins by seven million popular votes. Um, and they didn't they could have won enough Senate seats to make the Georgia runoffs irrelevant, but they didn't. 
So we've talked about that. But the Post took a kind of a deep dive uh, starting on, on the counties uh, that Trump won and Biden lost, the swing counties. So, for example, leading off with um, a county in a Democratic County or once Democratic County in Ohio that includes the Lordstown General Motors plant. And that was a plant that President Trump said he was going to try to save it, and it shut down anyway. But nevertheless, in that county, even though he failed to save their jobs, uh, Trump won that county. Uh, all other examples, in the heavily Hispanic South Bronx, in the liberal sanctum of San Francisco, according to the Post, and the immigrant-rich neighborhoods of Miami, President Trump also shrank Democratic margins by drawing thousands more to his side. Didn't necessarily win those counties, but he shrank the margin which shows that he was onto something. These are counties where they ordinarily would vote Democratic. He even swept the 31 Iowa counties that, this is kind of amazing, voted twice for Barack Obama before going Trump in 2016. And those warning signs, and we should, I, we should be reading more about this, have dampened the celebratory mood among Democrats who are very happy that the president uh, will be sent packing. But now, privately at least, these strategists are saying, they're talking with a sense of gloom and doom. So let's, let's look a little further into this. The strategists, according to this piece, worry about the emergence of a mostly male and increasingly interracial, and that's a triumph for Republicans who've always done so poorly among minorities, working class coalition uh, will cut into the Democratic advantages that Democrats have long counted on. It means that the Democrats who made big gains in the suburbs, that's the basic reason Biden won. I mean, they always do well in the big cities, but big gains in the suburbs. That that might, year, that might fade away when Trump is no longer on the ballot. And if they can't make inroads in rural areas, and I've talked about this before, then they're not going to be able to ever have more than a narrow Senate majority, if that, because of this, the, by definition, if a rural state gets two senators and a California or New York gets two senators, that kind of tilts the playing field in the Senate toward uh, more rural uh, areas. So, uh, and the math in 2022 is not very good for the Democrats in the midterms. Uh, we always first first two years after a new president, but also Republicans could even take over the House. They're not that many seats short. So Robbie Mook, who managed Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016, has an interesting quote. We won back the House and the White House in the suburbs, but my sense is we are leasing that support. We don't own it. With Trump gone, that lease is up for renewal, he says. We don't hold on to our gains in the suburbs or replace it by winning back working-class white voters, we will have a problem. Now, there's lots and lots of reasons, I suppose, why the Democrats aren't doing as well uh, among white working-class voters. This was a problem for Hillary in 2016. And apparently, he was also, I mean, Biden did better than Hillary Clinton did, and that's why he's the president-elect, but maybe not as well as many in his party um, would have hoped. So Trump was rejected by college-educated and coastal voters, but not... Um, across an, another broad swath of Americans who had the opposite reaction to what Democrats are selling. And there's more details here about which counties and who did well and who didn't do so well. And there's one Democratic strategist unnamed who has a quote that I makes the point that I want to make. It is a box-checking party, this person says. And one group of people never get their box checked, which is the almost half of Americans who are male. I don't know if that applies to all males, but I do think this. When you look at the way that Joe Biden is picking his cabinet members, and I don't have any problem in terms of seasoning and qualifications for most of them, but there is so much pressure on him. I mean, even after he nominated several African-Americans and several women and several Latinos and one gay American, 
Um, even as he went to do more picks, you still had the interest groups just pressure him. No, this one has to be a black woman, and this one has to be this, and this one has to be that. I mean, it is a party that is, at times seems like a collection of interest groups. And if that's the way that Joe Biden runs his presidency, and depending on how well he withstands pressure from his left, look, he won the nomination and the election because he wasn't Bernie Sanders, because he wasn't Elizabeth Warren, because he wasn't AOC, because he didn't go for Medicare for All, because he didn't buy into the zillion-dollar Green New Deal. Um, and if he governs more center-left, and depending on how he deals with the Republicans, he could have a successful presidency. But one of the reasons that a lot of these white working-class voters and even some of the uh, Hispanic and uh, African-American working-class voters were more favorable to Donald Trump, it may be a one-off because of Trump, but is because they don't think that this party delivers for them. They feel like it's a high-tax party uh, in name, enamored of big government, uh, that wants to take money, some of their hard-earned dollars away from them and give it to other people. Now, you get into who are these other people and are they the other. But, you know, naturally there's going to be resentment if year after year after year they're the ones having trouble finding jobs or the jobs that they find as more manufacturing jobs go overseas um, are don't pay as much as what they were accustomed to or the factory closes up as it did in that county in Ohio that was referenced at the top of the piece. Trump talked a lot about manufacturing jobs. Trump talked a lot about uh, coal and you know old kinds of energy as opposed to newer kinds of solar energy and so forth. Um, you can't completely reverse the tide of globalization or energy jobs, but you, you know the Democrats have to convince more working class people. I mean, they used to be the working class party, but now they seem to a lot of people to be the party of, uh, of you know, professors and academics and elite ivory tower types and AOC and uber liberals and so forth. So it's a little bit of a balancing because the Democrats won the White House. I say that with a slight pause only because the election is still contested, but of course they won the White House. And of course, uh, Biden will take office on January 20th, but they may not have won everything. Uh, one other point I wanted to make here is uh, on this election fraud business. Uh, as the president's inner circle has shrunk, uh, I think I touched on this on Friday's podcast, you know, he, he's gotten angry at times with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, with Pat Cipolo and the White House counsel who are opposing the more extreme measures. You know, this talk uh, by Mike Flynn and others uh, about let's get the military to supervise a rerunning of the election in states that Biden won or let's confiscate the voting machines. Bill Barr says you can't confiscate the voting machines. There's no evidence. I don't think the government has the power to do that or would need a court order. Uh, Bill Barr says no evidence of widespread force. So he's out. And so now President physically spending more time with Rudy Giuliani, with Mike Flynn, and with Sidney Powell, who was at the White House three times last week. But she complained to journalist David Martosco, um, who wrote a piece about this. She went on the record to say that while Trump wanted her to be his special counsel to look into, quote, election theft, her appointment, the paperwork, says Sidney Powell was blocked by top White House officials. And she says these top White House officials have barred her from the White House grounds, that she can't get into the mansion to make her case to Trump. So there's obviously a great power struggle going on. Why would Sidney Powell go public about this? To send a message to the president. If she can't reach him, if she can't call him, she can't go to the White House. Now look, a lot of people inside and outside the administration think Sidney Powell has a lot of conspiracy theories about communism in Venezuela that haven't held up in court. So I'm not saying that we need to feel sorry for I'm more observing the... Uh, um, 
amazing spectacle of the president wanting to spend more time with her and then her essentially being pushed out or at least kept away from the president by other White House aides who think that she is bad news. So that's where things stand. Uh, I've seen a lot of headlines uh, today and yesterday about mass confusion in Washington, incredible frustration in Washington. Uh, look, what Donald Trump's supporters say, and uh, one guest on my show made this point yesterday, is that he is a disruptor. He doesn't have the usual way of doing things. It's one of the reasons when he fights for the goals that conservatives agree on, whether it's getting more judges confirmed, getting a tax cut through, getting the, three, the third Supreme Court justice through, that of course would be Amy Coney Barrett, he can get results. And the media can complain all they want about process and the norms and shattering the norms and all that, but people who like this president, remember, he got 74 million votes. And most of those 74 million people do not trust the media. And that is a long-term, uh, short-term and long-term problem, problem for the media. Um, but but at, at times, and I documented uh, numerous instances of this when I was writing my book, Media Madness, um, when the president blindsides his own allies when he does this. They'll be having uh, a staff meeting and they'll present him with options on really serious stuff, what to do in Afghanistan, uh, what the transgender military policy should be, and on and on and on. And then without having the meeting to discuss it, He'll just tweet out, okay, I'm, I've decided on X. And the, and the people uh, around him, and he's been through several chiefs of staff. He's been through uh, several White House counsels. He's now been through two attorneys general. He's been through uh, four press secretaries. Uh, some of them will look at each other and say, what happened? I thought we were going to have the meeting to decide this. That's just how President Trump rolls. Sometimes it's effective. But the main point here is, because if he's sticking it to the Democrats, um, then, you know, if you're a partisan Republican, great. You know, who cares? how he does it. But he also is blindsiding his own staff. I think that's not totally unrelated to Bill Barr leaving. Remember, Bill Barr said six or eight months ago, the tweets were making it impossible for him to do his job. When he blindsides Republicans on the Hill who thought that Steve Mnuchin was speaking for the White House, who thought that the $600 checks were acceptable to Donald Trump, the Treasury Secretary, you know, hailing this agreement, and then suddenly it's blown up there's nothing to replace it. There's not much time to replace it. Uh, and they have to go home, and this may be a factor in the Georgia Senate races, saying, sorry, folks, I know it's Christmas, and I know you were counting on this unemployment aid, which has now vanished. I know you small businesses were counting on uh, a resumption of this federal loan program. Well, that's now frozen. I know that uh, struggling families would prefer $1,200, would prefer $2,000, but you're not going to get anything for now. Now, I suppose... If nothing happens, January 20th, Joe Biden comes in. Of course, you'll have a slightly different reconstituted Congress. It will take some time to hammer our deal. But even if he got it done in his first week, that's another month gone by while we're in the middle of what looks to be a worsening pandemic. And that is just a shame. I'm all for compromise. I'm all for the president uh, driving a hard bargain with members of Congress. That's the only, I mean, LBJ did that. It's the only way for a president to get his way, particularly when at least one house out of the two are in the hands of the opposition party. But you got to engage when the game is going on, not after the bills have passed. Uh, so as I say, uh, the media, even on his way out, I think the media have just sort of dropped any pretense of saying uh, that Trump is acting like a rational human being. And they don't come out and say, experts say this is erratic or it's unprecedented. We've never seen this before. They just come out and say it. Um, you know, CNN's John Howard. He's a psychopath. He's a kook. But even many Republicans are frustrated with their president and hope 
that he comes to his senses. Uh, as I've observed, observed before, if he had let the election thing go earlier, let's say after the Electoral College, and focused on the vaccines, the remarkable success uh, of Operation Warp Speed and the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, now getting out to people, going to save countless lives, that would be the thing he'd be remembered for in the final days of his presidency. Instead, he's remembered for what Republicans are describing as chaos. We'll see how that plays out once again. Hope you had a good weekend. Uh, I am going to get a little bit of a Christmas break here, so I'll be off tomorrow. But back here on Wednesday, look in your inbox, look in wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you then with more Busby. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.